This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. I'm Susanna Bowyer, I'm the Assistant Director at Research in Practice, and I'm here in um, uh, Sheffield University in the office of Professor Kate Morris, um, who is Professor of Social Work here at the University of Sheffield, and her um, long-term companion and um, collaborator, <laughs> Professor Breesh Featherstone, who um, is uh, from the University of Huddersfield. Both are experienced social workers and long-standing um, researchers in the field. And in this podcast, we're going to have a conversation about the powerful body of research with which they've been involved over the last number of years um, and the radical vision that they propose for thinking differently about working with children and families in need of support and protection. And we should at this point uh, just mention the colleagues involved in this, which is Sue White, Professor here at Sheffield, Anna Gupta, Professor at Royal Holloway, co-authors of our uh, social model book, and Professor Paul Bywaters and the Child Welfare and Equalities Research Team who've made a significant contribution to our work in this area. Thank you, absolutely, and indeed um, Nuffield Foundation and other funders as well in, in different parts yeah. of this research. So should we start there then, um, thinking about the uh, the work led by Paul Bywaters and um, involving many of the colleagues that you mentioned there, and the relationship between uh, child abuse and neglect and poverty to kind of set the scene for um, some of the kind of grounding of why this uh, poverty awareness approach is so important. So uh, there was a review, wasn't there, early in that large scale research project in 2016, um, which drew together research which shows the strong association between family socioeconomic circumstances and the chances that children in those families will experience child abuse or neglect. Um, that evidence in that review was shown to be found repeatedly across developed countries, across different types of abuse and maltreatment, um, and what using various different methods and research approaches. Um, could you um, explain a bit about the nature of that relationship between poverty and child abuse and neglect? Uh, yes, uh, it has a direct effect. Um, as the review identified. So, for example, it's directly implicated in the fact that people don't have uh, enough money to provide food, a growing issue actually in our society, uh, the lack of money to buy in support, the lack of money to have decent housing, uh, lack of money to provide uh, uh, heating for children, so food poverty, fuel poverty, etc. But also indirectly, what we um, there is a large body of research now on the impact on parental stress, uh, relationships between parents, between couples, and also actually uh, something that perhaps we used to pay a lot of attention to, but we have maybe not so much in social work itself, uh, the quality of the neighbourhood conditions in which people are trying to raise children, the levels of support, how safe they are, etc. Um, so one of the things that comes up a lot, though, is that it's not just a background factor. that, that it, And we found, uh, the evidence review shows this, but as Kate will say later, in terms of the case studies, it's really important not to think of it as just something that's inert or passive or there. It's actually implicated every day at all sorts of points around the decisions people have to make about do they get the bus, do they buy lunch, uh, can they feed the kids, you know, So and, and it interacts with a whole range of other uh, psychological issues that will be going on for them. And so lots of the kind of presenting issues that might 
come before um, social work or family support around things like um, lack of food in the household um, or non-school attendance might best be understood with a, 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 a really front front-facing kind of consciousness about what how poverty might be a, a factor there absolutely and I think what we're saying is that uh, that perhaps we have lost uh, to some extent that consciousness we're not saying it'll be the only reason why children aren't being fed or that it's the only reason why uh, they're not being taken to school what we're saying is though that we absolutely have to engage with that as a key factor and that's an increasing issue in our society where you have four million children in living in poverty and you have growing numbers um, uh, attending food banks, uh, etc. So what we're saying is we need to be poverty aware. Um, so it has to be a factor in our assessments. Yeah, and that, um, it's also being aware of uh, those changes in context for families like universal credit that can have a direct impact on their well-being and uh, uh, lifting our heads up a bit as social workers and practitioners and being aware, are you in an area where universal credit's been rolled out? Are you in an area where certain helpful services have been closed down or their funding ceased? So it's just really engaging with that context in which the family's trying to either survive or thrive. And I think that's important and at times gets a little bit lost as we're detached in offices, away from neighbourhoods. It's easy to lose sight of that a bit. Yeah. yeah. Do we understand the demographics of the area? What, you know, is it all zero hours contracts? What are the work situations like of people? All those kind of very practical, everyday aspects of people's lives that we really need to have as part of our understandings of how they are around caring for their children. Thank you. No, absolutely. Um, so come back to some of that, um, the practical detail of, of poverty aware practice and how to develop that. Um, but I also just wanted to um, explore a little bit more about some of that research with Paul Bywaters and colleagues, because I think one of the things that um, is so strong about research and international research is that um, when people are working right in the belly of one particular system or one particular kind of policy context, it can be hard to imagine that things can be done differently. Um, and both history and looking back to sort of social work in, in recent previous decades, but also some of the international work across um, the four nations of the UK that you did with your colleagues show that things don't have to be done um, uh, in the way that we are familiar with doing them in England. Now, that four nations work showed some very interesting different statistical um, uh, findings around uh, around child welfare activity across the four nations and of course we can't show um, we can't show graphs and charts on a podcast but it would be great if you would be able to give us a little bit of a taste of um, the findings on the comparison between the way that these uh, these policies are um, play out in different parts of the UK I mean a key message is is that within each country uh, the relationship with deprivation was this was statistically significant so a child's chances of coming into care rose the more deprived they were so and that's in every country um what is as you say interesting though is that there were differences between the four countries um england and wales were pretty similar 
Yeah, whereas Scotland had very large numbers of when you control for deprivation, uh, Scotland had very large numbers of children in care, and Northern Ireland had much lower rates. And we calculated it per ten thousand. Um, so, but that's quantitative work that opens up lots of questions about why it doesn't answer why it tells us that there's something going on but I do think the headline for us at this stage is that within each country the relationship with deprivation holds and is extremely significant and you may within that see some local variation so you may see some local authorities producing different figures Uh, you may see some regions producing some difference but if you're going to uh, say that, that, that what's the significant driver this relationship with deprivation is the significant driver for the unequal rates of intervention within each country yeah. yes of course practice ma- matters and yes local thresholds and local kind of uh, decision making matters but if you're going to understand a pattern and it is a pattern. It is the, the you know systemically, we have to see that as a as a significant driver. Where it gets interesting, as Bree said, is that Northern Ireland is a very poor nation, and yet has a very low rate of intervention. And so some of the questions we've been raising are about those differences between nations rather than within nations. And the other interesting area is ethnicity and uh, trying to understand what the data tells us about the different experiences when you factor both poverty and ethnicity Mm. into the analysis. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, So it's very early days. I think we would say there's it it raises more questions than it answers, that we haven't had a sufficiently... uh, nuanced understanding of the different uh, rates and patterns when you factor in poverty and ethnicity. Um, so in ter- if you look, if you take deprivation into account, actually white working class uh, kids are, are very, have very high num- rates of children in care. Then there's this, we've terrible data incidentally, uh, there's this mixed category which is very high rates again, uh, very l- lower rates given deprivation for Asian kids. Uh, and, and then uh, black kids are after, in, after in, the the, mi- in the middle. So I think what we're saying is that there's been a story that it's about racism and discrimination, which of course we wouldn't deny, but what we're saying is we do need to look at the interaction of de- deprivation and ethnicity, and we do need more research in that area, definitely. And what it brings us back to, and I think it's something as practitioners to think about as well, is that because we know so little about the social and economic circumstances of the children with whom we intervene, it makes it very difficult to arrive at some broader based understandings. So for example, because we don't, although case by case, we collect information about families, at a population level, we don't know how many families are in work or out of work in terms of their children being in the care system. So it's very difficult to say whether work is a protective factor or not, because we don't have that data. So it is quite staggering that we don't 
have that data nationally and we don't have that picture of who of whose children we are intervening with or removing and I think there's um an important set of questions for us about the data we're collecting and the, and the how informed we are about some of the actions we're taking. Yeah, exactly. And so you it raises lots of really interesting research questions about, you know, Asian kids, you know, what's that about? It could is is it that you know that they have stronger, as people believe, stronger social supports, or is it that the mother isn't in employment, or we, we simply don't know? But it it opens up those questions. Because, but but we do really want to get across that point, that major point, though, that the the dep- deprivation is a really significant issue, both across the piece uh, for families, but also within countries, because it is. We have tended to go down there looking at the differences, the differences between different local authorities or the differences between different regions. And we're not denying those, but we're saying there is an underlying pattern that we need to address. Um, One of the realities for black and minority ethnic children is that they are overrepresented in poor areas. Mm-hmm. So they tend so so they by bringing in deprivation into the analysis, you start to understand some important differences in children's experiences, so, and that's another reason for needing to read across these data sets in a way we perhaps haven't historically done. Yes, so like so often with um, data analysis, the the data analysis raises m- many more questions. Um, at, that need to be explored a bit more deeply. But as you're saying, there are there is this um, core finding here that a model of child protection or welfare that doesn't incorporate an inequalities perspective is likely to be ineffective. Can we now talk about the qualitative research you did exploring the interplay between decisions to intervene in children's lives and their social, economic and material circumstances? So as alongside the work with the the, the uh, big data sets, we were uh, able to spend time immersed in social work teams having a think about how social workers take account of children's social and economic circumstances in their decisions to intervene. And there are some overarching themes that come from that. Um, and it's important to say, Irrespective of where we went, social workers are dealing with unmet need and rationing. So repeatedly across the sites we can see social workers feeling frustrated by being unable to meet the needs of the families. Poor localities are the usual site of social work practice. All the teams, uh, predominantly the families they worked with, came from the poor areas. And that was unremarkable and therefore unremarked upon. It was, we call it the wallpaper of practice. People are so used to uh, poverty forming the backdrop that it no longer was a focus of attention or comment. Um, it's ingrained, poverty's en- ingrained, endemic but actually wasn't particularly visible in practice responses. So why social workers were able to articulate when prompted fairly detailed uh, hypotheses and analysis about the relationship between poverty and the family difficulties and needs and problems. When we looked at plans for children, when we looked at uh, decision-making, we see remarkably little evidence of sustained attention 
the social and economic factors that might be involved in that need. Um, our analysis also suggests that uh, existing frameworks may struggle to connect professional core business with families' core business. So professionals' core business was often described as parenting, risk management, uh, capacity, viabilities assessments. And of course for families their core business was often food, warmth, shelter, the use of food banks was evident across the piece, housing difficulties, no recourse to public funds. So for families the core business is about being able to feed your children, keep warm, safe environment and the professional core business was about systems management, parenting capacity and so one of the things we talk about is how might we reconnect families core business with professionals core business and and it's an interesting conversation about why we've ended up with core business that isn't the same really. So the other, uh, the other thing is that social workers talked about was that um, a real sense of poverty is almost too big to tackle. In the context of ever-diminishing resources, they talked about the impact of uh, cuts to services, the reduction in the hollowing out of family support services. Uh, poverty can just seem too big an issue to tackle. Social workers talked about almost feeling in poverty themselves in terms of not having the resources and the facilities to engage with families. I think um, that's what came out of the case studies. But since then, um, it's just become obvious that that's a really dominant narrative, actually, and that it extends from policymakers right down, that people have just kind of almost thrown their hands up in despair and said, what can we do about this? You know, if a big company decides to leave England and kind of have its production elsewhere how can we change anything and that's a really that's a really important thing that we need to tackle actually yeah. as a society thinking about how we can the, to some extent the social workers were echoing a much more pervasive sense of powerlessness about poverty and actually we ha do have recent experience though from previous governments where we did tackle poverty. Do you know, we have recent experience where we reduced the numbers of children living in poverty by taking certain policy measures. So it is very important to remember that. And I was at a presentation recently where the Child Poverty Action Group were making that point very clearly and mm. saying it doesn't have to be like this. It used to be different. Well, there are three kind of further relevant themes, I think. Um, one is we need to be terribly careful we don't place a burden on frontline practitioners to change what are systemic patterns. So we need to recognise whilst changing practice and enhancing practice is important, on its own it's not enough. This pattern we see, this relationship between deprivation and unequal rates of intervention, practice can only be one part of, uh, of redressing this. But we also saw, saw social workers getting themselves in what we described to be a kind of moral model, really, in that in wanting to practice equitably, they uh, didn't want to acknowledge poverty. 
they would say things like most families in poverty don't harm their children. It's not fair to make assumptions about the relationship between poverty and harm. We want to treat people the same. We don't want to let that inform our decision making. But of course, the reality of that was it meant social workers weren't in touch with the everyday experiences of children and families. So ignoring the poverty didn't make it go away for the family. It just made it a, an important factor that was missing in those assessments. So I think as a, as a profession, as a, as a discipline, we need to untangle this kind of moral muddle. And then the other thing we saw, and this is... Uh, a difficult area for us to think about, but one I think we have to, which is we did see some systems and some practices that reinforce the shame and suffering of poverty. And one of the things we've been saying in this work is we know you can't change some of these bigger patterns, but do take a look at your everyday systems and your everyday practices and make sure they aren't making a difficult situation worse. And that occurs in all sorts of ways. We saw... Uh, families struggling to fund attendance at critical meetings. We saw uh, non-attendance being uh, reinterpreted as resistance when it might just be actually practically it's almost impossible to get there. We saw um, quite negative narratives about particular areas or districts, quite pejorative uh, comments about where families were living some territorial stigma really creeping into social workers' descriptions of areas. So I think whilst we're absolutely clear there's a limit to what individual social workers can do, humane practice that doesn't further reinforce shame and suffering is important in this. Yeah, humane practice, it's a, um, a really important um, concept and in a way one that you know, even in the fact that we need to name it is a kind of important moment, isn't it? That we are rediscovering the need to think in humane terms um, about the work that's going on. I suppose, as you're saying, you know, if poverty is um, kind of part of the wallpaper in, uh, in, in social work practice or has become part of the wallpaper in, in, in England in social work practice, and if the the kind of cultural norm for social work practice has become very focused on risk, individual families assessing the risk factors within individual relationships between this parent and this child out of context of where they're living and the kind of pressures on, on it within which they're, they're um, existing, then, uh, then it's very... It, it's very easy to see how that can slide into something that for parents is actually really scary. It's all about they're, they're coming to take my kids away and, and being and the possibility of engaging and getting the support that, that, that good social work can and does provide to families um, is reduced. It's a challenge, isn't it? So, yes. Um, so what's happened is we've developed this framework, which is that child abuse and neglect is about what individual families do or don't do and it's crucially what individual parents do or don't do and often it's what individual mothers do or don't do. It's quite household focused, it's quite narrow in its gaze, uh, it's often very psychological, again I'm not say we're not saying that psychological approaches aren't important, they are, but it kind of needs to lift its gaze a bit to looking at 
well, who does she? Who does mum talk to? Who can she go to if she needs to borrow some money? Where does she go with three kids when the buses are all kind of different for different kids and they've got to go to different schools? Um, so what we're trying to say, and, and there, is a, there is examples in the research, but also from our other colleagues, and we write about this in the book, of where people's inability to access housing, for example, is taken as evidence that they're not committed to their children. You know, so it's a kind of completely voluntarist approach to the capacity of families to do things. You know, it doesn't acknowledge that we exercise personal responsibility within circumstances that are not always of our own choosing. You know, we are not totally the authors of our lives, are we? We're, we're all bound within constraints trying to exercise agency. And so we think social work has just got that individual structure bit a bit wrong, actually, on that continuum. It's gone too far towards it's your responsibility, whereas we need to, again, reorient it, bring it back. As part of this um, project, we were uh, able to spend some time um, in an, one of the most deprived communities, uh, thinking about how community members and families understood and thought about children's services, because we felt it was important to have that bit of data in the mix as well. And it was really interesting, because one of the things that was clear is that they didn't experience social workers as connected with other community resources and services. So they didn't see a connection between social workers, and employment advisors or food banks or local faith-based organisations. So there was a sense of social work being semi-detached or detached from everyday community life. But there's also something quite interesting about a community narrative really about social workers being uh, uh, fairly punitive finger wagging scary you know they're going to take your children away they tell you you know they uh, tell you what to do and yet also from individual family members in that very same community some incredibly positive stories about how much their social work had helped us help them. So there is something interesting about individual family experiences and community narratives and the distance between the two that it reflect I think the point that Breeze is making about how well we're engaging with communities and families beyond that individual risk focus lens mm. and, and echoes that really. Mm. And you talked a bit <clears throat> earlier about the fact that uh, patch social work or other forms of social work where where the workers would be living within the communities and, and understand through direct experience what the what it was like to live in that community and how we've probably moved in mo most cases away from that and people are driving in and out of work and uh, and no less no firsthand less about the communities where they're working so conversely then in in terms of doing things differently what comes through strongly in your studies is around um, co-producing approaches with people who have these experiences and really hearing firsthand those stories and experiences of what it is to live in those in those um, in in those communities and and with those pressures. Um, Anna Gutta on uh, has got some lovely stories from that where she unpacks some of these questions from the point of view of of the person who has been. Uh, characterised as failing to engage, for instance. Yeah. Um, and 
I just wonder if you've any other, you know, any other examples, positive examples of where um, parents and families are being drawn into that co-production and, and social workers and others are being awakened to those experiences by hearing properly what it's like. Let me just talk, say, yes, before we kind of delve into individual examples, just more generally, um, there's a lovely uh, sentence from a, a community leader in the community study where they talk about tidal hope and that communities live with tidal hope, which is this ebb and flow of short-term funded initiatives, be it Sure Start, children's centres, whatever, and the impact that has on the community in terms of how uh, devastating uh, that can be. So you can start to appreciate and enjoy a local resource that then goes. And that makes you a bit wary the next time there's a local resource, but you engage and then that goes. And so uh, I think it's really important for us to understand the fabric of that community's life and this consequence of short-term uh, targeted interventions. I think it's important to say that, and that's at community level. And then the, at an individual level, one of the things we talk about in Stepping Up, Stepping Down, is, which is a, a research report funded by Lan Kelly Chase, is families rarely have any positive space to contribute their knowledge, experience and skills in relation to navigating services, coping with particular stresses and strains, whatever it might be. The most usual route for families to engage is through complaints. If it's not the casework, it's complaints because you don't like what you've received. Having positive spaces and places for families to engage with us in all sorts of different ways, whether that's about designing services, commissioning services, evaluating services, is relatively rare. When we have seen it, it's provoked all sorts of really interesting conversations between policymakers, practitioners and families about doing things differently. And so I think that's quite an important way of thinking differently move away from a deficit model of family engagement to a strength-based model of family engagement i mean this is not linked to this actual research but is a theme in the book that we've written protecting children a social model is there is now around the world and there is a bit of an explosion here in this country particularly of parents voices and parents starting to tell their stories often on social media and in conferences. I mean, five years ago, it was quite rare still to get a parent at a children's services annual conference, whereas it's now quite routine. Uh, and it and that ha that's very important, going back to your point about humane practice, because people are starting to hear each other's stories, because one of the things about a risk-based system is that uh, people's stories get colonised into a risk frame and so their their kind of plea for help is not understood or heard or recognised. So we, we think that there are a lot of really positive embryonic things going on around parents' voices around Andy Bilson has just started the uh, he's part of a big parental-led parental parent advocacy network which is international which we are very positive about. Uh, there is a range of, in, in another thing we talk a lot about in the book is the learning that Anna and I got from the adoption inquiry, where we uh, parents, birth parents, adoptive parents and adopted people came together for a day in a room and talked to each other and listened and heard each other. Uh, and there is some very positive things happening around contact now and adoption. Um, 
for, for a range of reasons. One thing I think that really is very clear is you can have a lot of very good research uh, and you can have um, people plodding on, desperately trying to get heard, but it takes a while for things to come together. So what yes. we're seeing at the minute yes. is the coming together of a range of things. Yeah. I think the parents' charter... Yeah, um, from your family, your voice, and the work with family rights group around parents panels. These are all green shoots, as Breeze is describing, of thinking differently together, mm. forming alliances, doing it differently, um, and we have to give the you know we have to give those real proper space to grow. We've got to be so careful that we don't yet again go in there and colonise those and turn those into what we think they should be. I think it's going to be a very interesting time. Mm. And not necessarily very comfortable times, actually. Mm. You know, uh, people get... We found this in the adoption of... People get very cross, they get very hurt, they get, they're very damaged by what's happened to them. Uh, yeah, it's, it, and I think the whole role of professionals and academics is really interesting in this process. Yeah. Really interesting. In 2018, you ran some workshops for research and practice around England um, at which you were supporting strategic managers from local authorities all over the place to think about practical ways to apply um, some of the findings of this powerful body of research that we've been talking about. Could you explain a little bit about the approaches you suggested to them, the practical means to, to put some of this into practice? So we did a, a series of uh, action planning exercises with the workshops. I have to say, I think on behalf of Breach and I, we were bowled over by uh, how willing people were to engage with this and how much this resonated, this research and this thinking resonated with their experiences. And that was, as researchers, it's tremendously heartening when you realise that actually there's just such a strong connection between your research and people's practice and policy interests. So there was a, a set of work we started to do in terms of data and thinking about how well people understand the communities that they serve and people going away to really think about what data they might routinely collect and how they might interrogate that to better understand the families that they're trying to and the children that they're seeking to deliver services to. So that was quite important um, and it will be interesting to see where people have gone with that we saw the green shoots of some quite sophisticated work in terms of uh, thinking about the relationship between data on poverty and deprivation and the children coming through the system and therefore the families from whom those children were coming from we did some very uh, careful thinking about policies people thinking very carefully about things like their neglect policy I wanted to go away and think about that and thinking about the fact that poverty may not be as evident in their neglect strategies as it needed to be and that that might then lead to some changes in their uh, local authority-wide uh, structures and, and approaches to neglect. And then on a routine, oh, and in terms of some of the decision-making processes, certainly some uh, people who are independent chairs, child protection conferences looked after children, wanting to go away and audit the plans to understand where social and economic conditions and contexts are in terms of those plans, whether they're evident, and if they're not evident, should they be? And then on a day-to-day -day basis, people saying, I need to poverty-prove some of my practice. I need to stop and think quite carefully about how realistic and possible it is to engage 
uh, for families living with poverty. What does it mean in terms of uh, routine use of food bank? People have become very familiar with that, but had perhaps stopped thinking about what that really meant in terms of everyday practice. So uh, people going away to just look at their routine, everyday uh, casework practice and, and just do a bit of poverty proofing around that. So it's really a layered response to uh, the research, but quite, quite sophisticated mm -hmm. and quite nuanced in terms of what people are going to take away. And when you talk about, you know, that there's a real groundswell of, of attention and consciousness about this, there's some good stuff to draw on, isn't there? So there's this um, <clears throat> poverty-aware framework uh, for social work that has been launched in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Would, would you flag that a bit? Because I think that's something people can access online very straightforwardly. And that came straight out of the Child Welfare Inequalities Project. Sean Holland was on our advisory group. He's the chief social worker in Northern Ireland. He uh, was became very engaged with the findings of the whole project, spoke at our uh, launch event at the end of the conference or uh, at the end of the project um, and uh, then worked they worked in Northern Ireland on a multi-agency basis and they have family hubs so they see those as very important places to locate some of the practice um, yeah it's it's a very it's a multi-agency document that's trying to think across uh, the piece about how people can embed a poverty aware approach Another kind of very uh, sensible, we thought, development uh, was folks starting to explore whether they could co-locate income maximisation services with some of their duty teams so that families, social workers felt they weren't sufficiently uh, knowledgeable about the current benefits system, that it's just too complex. And so trying to form those routine working relationships and certainly we know for some areas that's led to over 80% of families seeing an increase in income. And if you go back to the review that Bridge talked about at the start of this podcast, that, you know, poverty is a contributory factor for child abuse and neglect. If you can maximise income, you are going to see for families some easing of the stresses and strains in which they're living. So those seem very practical uh, developments that people were prepared to take on the back of this research. And there's real clear cost-benefit sort of um, data there, isn't there? Mm -hmm. So Child Poverty Action Group, again, that I think you saw the same presentation mm -hmm. I did, Breach, mm -hmm. um, we're talking about uh, benefits advisors placed in food banks and really extraordinary yeah. levels of additional income yeah. that was drawn into families because yeah. benefits to which they had an entitlement were not yeah. being claimed and given this advisor right there on the ground at the food bank that that was really making an immediate difference there. So in terms of sort of locality strategy planning and thinking Absolutely. about how to use resources, that something like that um, can really reap huge returns in for you know a relatively small investment in in thinking about advice at that level. Yeah, Child Poverty Action Group mentioned Tower Hamlets particularly. That, that um, and one of the things about that present, I did a presentation at Manchester Met where Child Poverty Action Group was speaking. I was talking about this particular project, and then you had somebody who was. Uh, doing advice in the community. She was a manager of uh, benefits advice in the community and a kind of advice centre more generally. And what was really important was the three of us talking to each other because the Child Poverty Action Group hadn't quite made the links that we were making into the child protection system 
one of the things I think that we really need to confront as a society, I think, is that child protection is seen as something over there. It's it's to do with really, really troubled, stressed, difficult mm. families, problematic families. And actually, uh, it's seen as kind of something quite different from what happens for everybody else. I suppose one of the things we're trying to say is, we're trying to go back to earlier messages in our society, which is child protection is everybody's business. We can all struggle. We can all end up in trouble. We can all end up falling off that precipice. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, there was a piece of research that I often talk about, uh, Caroline Hooper's work, which shows how, you know, um, money and trauma can interact in an intergenerational sense to to really problem make things very problematic for families but we tend to think of it oh it's over there it's these uniquely stressed families and that was why those conversations were really important actually and the child poverty action group came to our launch as well and are clearly making the links now into a broader understanding of child protection I think what you're saying there is really pertinent I think often with in my work at research and practice you see different bodies of theory coming to the fore so trauma-informed practice for instance in the last couple of years has been an area of um, a great deal of attention and has huge riches to bring to um, direct practice and yet if we uh, again it's this kind of broadening your lens isn't it you know if we if we narrow our lens too finely onto one particular mm. body of theory or one mm. way of analyzing a situation we're completely missing a trick and we need to uh, bring these theories into conversation with each other just as you say we need to bring different areas of professional expertise yeah. together on the ground to to yeah. make sense and that yeah. can be hard because i think um, it's about thinking both and rather than either or and it's kind of holding a whole range of perspectives in mind and in thought and in action and and it's easier to think oh i'll just concentrate on this bit over there but actually social work is about the whole picture and that's historically what it's been about. Mm. So it's very important that we try and support social workers to be able to think about the whole picture. Mm. The other thing is that we've all had the experience uh, uh, of people saying to us, oh, we know poverty is relevant, of course it's relevant, but not to the families we work with. You know, they're uniquely troubled. Mm. And, and if you gave them more money, they'd just drink it. or th you know. So it, it's really important that we kind of really think through what's going on there. So many of the things that we've been talking about through um, this conversation are themes that come through in your recent book that um, you've done once again with your colleagues Anna Gupta and Sue White, um, building on the Reimagining Child Protection book that came out three years ago now, is it? 2014. 2014. Um, so, you know... Uh, a really strong kind of um, grouping of thinking and a strong kind of building of thinking around these questions. Um, I know we've got, you know, some of these themes have come through already in the conversation, but talk to us a bit about, about the book and the model and um, how you feel that that collaboration between the four of you is really generative in, in building the thinking here. So, um, you're right to connect it with reimagining um, because we definitely that that started our thinking, um, and we uh, should make mention of Joe Warner here, who we wrote an article about the risk monster with, which formed the bridge really for us between reimagining and a social model, and that article with Joe began to think about. If you think about the social model in disability and the way in which it's shifted 
the the paradigm. It's changed the paradigm really in terms of, or tempted to in terms of how we understand and respond to and think about disability. But that was the kind of paradigm shift we wanted to engage with in terms of child protection and hence a social model for child protection. We really see it as a start of a conversation. So we think it's a, a, we're trying to contribute to a conversation rather than say we have the answers. And we're very clear about that. We say that repeatedly. We don't have some kind of off-the-peg model in this book that people can go away with and it'll solve everything. It's Still no silver bullet, eh? There is never going to be one. It's much more about saying, is there a different way of framing this? Is there a different way of thinking about this? Are there some different conversations and different voices to be heard? And so that's what the book's trying to do, really. And bring together these strands, as, as Bree says, you know, that... That, that recognises the role of trauma, of social and economic determinants, of the way in which we think about uh, the rights of children to flourish in our society and, and how we understand family support. So it's quite a big picture in terms of the book, but with them also we've tried throughout to take some specific examples and say, look, uh, this is how this community or this service tried to think differently. You asked about the relationship between us as researchers. I mean, um, Kate, Sue and I did Reimagining Child Protection um, towards humane uh, practice with families. And I think um, it's fair to say that, and I think the same is definitely true in Protecting Children, a social model, is whether it's foolhardy or not, we're not afraid to range across disciplines that we, I, I come from sociology background, as does Sue, uh, you come from applied social studies background. We've a range of different experiences as researchers and as social workers. We've done lots of different types of research, like for example, Sue's research on system design. I mean, all that groundbreaking work she did for the ESRC around uh, how, how social workers were spending their time. She's Anna's work on the capability approach it's a real yeah broad church it is and it's also a body of different bodies of research so for example sue would probably have much more experience of researching social workers and multi-agency research she's done nihr studies where she's looked at patient safety for example so she brings all that system design stuff which i think is really valuable to thinking about what helps or hinder social workers to engage with families. Then we have done much more the service user end of it. I have a long history of working with fathers, of thinking about how you might do domestic abuse differently. I've worked with the family rights group around parent advocacy. You've done years of research around family perspectives and family group conferencing and equally then Anna's work with the ATD Fourth World and work with families in poverty is really important. So we bring a whole range of different research experiences and Anna's background is actually not in the social sciences originally. I think she studied Japanese, actually, mm-hmm. and was, uh, came from India, brought up in Australia. So we come, we're not afraid to range widely, to look at philosophy. I love philosophy, to look at history, to look at sociology, to look at applied social work. And we think that that brings a real richness, we hope, to our work and to our conversations. And the last chapter of the book is very much about reaching out and saying we do need to talk, you know, we need to talk to political philosophers. We need One of the things I, I feel is really important is that in social work we have this ongoing, very understandable conversation about why do people not trust us? Would it be good if the government's started saying how great we are would that help our why have we got such a bad image i actually think we need to look at why 
lots of people aren't trusted in our society why we've had a decline of trust in expertise why we you know governments aren't trusted journalists aren't trusted now we have experts aren't trusted so we need to have those kind we need to look much more broadly at a broader literature and of course we all work in universities where we talk to colleagues from other disciplines all the time you're in sociological studies people working here have fantastic experience of different kinds of research. I'm the same. I've been lucky to work in a range of different uh, uh, universities where women's studies was very strong in Bradford or philosophy was very strong at one point. So I think we're bringing a range of things, aren't we? Conversations and histories. And it allows us, and I think um, this is the, the kind of important, quite important, is that it allows us to move away from what works. And what works has its place, and we recognise that in the book. We, we, you know, we explore the place of uh, informed interventions in children's and families' lives. But with this book, we've tried to take a, a, a step back from what works to really engage in a conversation about what, what's, this, what's the purpose? Why are we in families' lives? Why, what, what's the kind of framing? for our involvement and to think much more broadly because the risk of focusing on what works is we lose sight of that much bigger picture about who are we working with and why and what rights do we have and, and the ethics of engagement and all those kind of much bigger complex strands we've tried to bring together. And again, it's not either or, no, but it's about trying to situate what works in a bigger picture. I yeah, I think it's really important. I've gone back to conversations we've been having in social work for years with people, uh, wonderful researchers like Geraldine MacDonald, who would say it isn't ethical not to be evidence-based. We would also say that ethics opens up bigger questions as well as well. Something might work, but is it right? You know, it might work in the short term, but is it right in the longer term? And we had to face those questions in the adoption inquiry all the time. There were big questions in the adoption inquiry about short-term effectiveness versus long-term identity issues, for example. So um, we've been having those conversations in social work for quite a while, haven't we, about evidence and ethics. And we, we I think in reimagining, we did have a, that chapter on ethics really tried to drill down to some of that. And we constantly use that reference from Dingwall, don't we? We use that everywhere, you know, which is the quote about it's not about technical fixes, but what's a good society. And I think that, it, that motivates all of us, doesn't it? To think what's a good society for children and families. Are we creating a good society? So there are very challenging questions in the first chapter where we say, can you really improve child protection practice at the same time as increase the numbers of children living in poverty or increase the numbers of families having to access food banks? Is there a bit of a disconnect there? So we do put that challenge out to government, don't we, in that first chapter? Yeah, yeah. You, is there anything you might want to say about where next then for you and your team of colleagues? So we're working with a number of local authorities uh, where we're doing some very small-scale but innovative work, thinking very carefully about community and about place-based uh, responses that can support children and families and social work's role in that, but trying to take us away from just service-driven interventions to a more holistic approach. Um, and we're hopeful that that work will grow and flourish over the next couple of years. Um, and we're taking that work out of it being just about social work, who are 
and people who are called child protection people to actually starting to talk to community workers and stuff to break down this assumption that child protection is something that's done with highly stressed families over there by particular kinds of experts. Thanks for listening to this Research in Practice podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on Twitter? Tweet us at ResearchIP.